The first two days of this series, I took up a question which was, some people see a conflict between spirituality and materialism, between getting ahead in the world <clears throat> and progressing spiritually. So over the last two days I reconciled this apparent conflict and explained to you that in fact we need both spiritual progress and we need the world. And I explained it in this way, I concluded in this way, that we ourselves are made up of two main parts, our true self, the divine soul, and our physical body. So our physical body needs things from this world, and our soul wants God. So God can give our soul perfect happiness, and the world can give our body what it needs. And we are meant to live in the world in this way, with God as our goal, but our body still existing in the world. So we live a good life in the world, a disciplined life, but keeping in mind that the ultimate goal is God-realization. Today the question I'm going to take up is a very important one which a lot of people have in their mind, especially in this modern world where a lot of emphasis is given on scientific thinking, rational thinking, and especially nowadays, if being here in America, there's even more emphasis on that. And each successive generation, meaning the, the younger generations which come along, seem to give more and more and more emphasis on these things. So for those living in America or even born in America, this is a very important question, which is, is faith unscientific? Is it uh, illogical to have faith in something without having direct proof of it? Believing in something without having seen it with your own eyes. Is that irrational? Some people think that's what we do in religion. That we just have blind faith. So they see it as opposed to rational thinking. Because a scientist tries to prove things. And people who have that kind of mindset, they, they think and sometimes say that I'll believe it when I see it. You show it to me, then I'll believe it. I don't believe in anything that I haven't seen. So this is another apparent conflict that we're going to resolve before we go more deeply into the philosophy of Hinduism. So basically the question is, why should we have faith in Hinduism, in the Hindu scriptures, and uh, is it illogical to have faith in something like that? <clears throat> so what we're talking about is proof. We want proof. The main kind of proof that I've been talking about so far is called Pratyaksh Pramar. It means you get your own direct experience. You see something, therefore you know it exists. Can we get that kind of proof when it comes to God? That would be ideal, wouldn't it? If we could actually get direct proof, our own proof, our own direct experience of God, meaning see Him with our own eyes, touch Him, talk to Him, then we would have proof that He actually exists. This is what scientists try to do. They use their power of observation to try to discover things and prove the existence of things. And then once they get that proof, then they know, okay, this thing really exists. So can we get that kind of proof for God? We can't from where we sit right now, but it is possible to get that proof. So it's not impossible to prove God's existence. It is not impossible to get your own direct experience of God. But from where we sit right now, it is. In other words, we're unqualified to have that experience yet. But there is a way to become qualified. Why are we unqualified? Why can we not get direct proof right now? Show me God right now, then I'll believe in Him. So if someone had that kind of power, why wouldn't they just show us God? 
So let's go into our scriptures. Our scriptures of Sanatana Dharma inform us about this. The Vedas say, Yasya matam tasya matam matam yasya na vedasaha avigyatam vijanatam vigyatam avijanatam. Kena Upanishad says, the one who thinks he can know God with his material limited intellect, there is no more ignorant person than that. And the one who knows that God cannot be known with our material intellect, that person understands the truth. Sri Krishna says in the Gita, Vedaham samatitani vartamanani charjuna bhavishyani chabhutani mam tu vedanakaschana Arjun, I know everything, past, present, and future, but nobody knows me. Mam tu vedanakaschana. Nobody can know me. Ram Swarupa Tumhara Vachanaya Gochar Buddhi Para Avigat Akath Apara Neti Neti Nita Nigamavad Ramayana says the same thing that Bhagwan Ram is beyond the reach of our intellect. So why can God not be known from our mind or seen from our eyes. Even when Arjuna asked Krishna, please show me your divine form. I want to see you in your divine form. Krishna said, Natume shakyase drashtum manenaivasvachakshusha Arjuna, you can't see me with your eyes. Again, the same answer. You're unqualified. With your eyes, you can't see God. With your mind, you can't know God. So a scientist might say, well, that proves then that God doesn't exist. Oh, well, let's find out the reason. Why can't we know God? Again, the Vedas say, but there's a difference in subtlety even in things within this material world. You see, Indriyebhya parahyartha arthe bhyascha paramana manasastu parabuddhir buddheratma mahan parah mahata paramavyakta mavyaktat purusha parah purushan naparam kinchit sakashtha sa paragati kathopanishad. Your senses are on one level. But more subtle than your senses are the objects of your senses. Because there are some things that exist that your senses cannot perceive. For instance, a microbe. You can't see a microbe with the naked eye. So the objects of the senses are more subtle than your actual senses. <clears throat> but more subtle than both the senses and the objects of the senses is your man, your emotional mind. More subtle than your man and beyond your man is your buddhi, your intellectual mind. More subtle and beyond your buddhi is your soul. Beyond the soul is maya. And beyond maya is God. So whatever is beyond can't be reached with the previous thing. So, with your senses, you can't know your own mind even. Has anyone ever seen their mind with their own eyes? I don't mean your brain, your mind. Mind is in here. No one can see it because it's beyond the senses. And beyond your mind is your soul. So you can't see your soul either. If you can't see your mind and soul is beyond the mind, then you can't see the soul either. And God is even beyond the soul, so how will you see Him? Why is he beyond? So far we lear we've learned that we can't see him, we can't know him with our senses or mind. We asked why? The answer is because he's beyond our senses and mind. 
Why is he beyond? Let's ask that question as well. There's a very simple answer. Divyo Yamurta Purusha Sabahya Bhyantaro Hyajaha Mundaka Upanishad. He's divine, and your senses, mind, and intellect are all mayak material. Yato Vacho Nivartante Aprapya Manasasah Taitari Upanishad. Therefore, the mind cannot reach God. As far as it can go, God is beyond that. So it comes back empty-handed. Go, go, char, jahan lagi man jai, so sab maya janehu bhai. Ramayan says, your mind is mayak. So what is the extent to which your mind could reach? Within Maya, when it's made of Maya, how could it go beyond Maya? It's impossible. So whatever the mind can think, whatever the mind can know or understand would all be Mayak. Now let's consider that for a second. Even within the field of Maya, our mind has limitations. Never mind God who is beyond Maya and is divine. Our material mind should be able to understand material things, should it not? It's material, it's mayak. This world is material. This world is mayak. Yet there are so many things scientists don't understand. Why can we not understand it? It means even a material thing can be beyond a person's material mind. Even a material thing can be beyond your material eyesight. A microbe, a star that's so far away the light doesn't even reach here, you can't see it with the naked eye. So even within the material universe, our senses have limitations. They're only cert they can reach to a certain limit within Maya. Our mind can only understand certain things, so it has a certain limit within Maya. That's why I ask any scientist, do you know everything? Do you understand everything? He'll laugh. Are you kidding? Every time we discover something new, we understand that there's so much more that we don't know. So we're limited even within Maya. What to say of what is beyond Maya? So God is beyond Maya, therefore He's absolutely beyond the reach of our senses or our understanding. One other way to understand this is that God is the one upholding our very existence. Yan manasa na manute yena hurmanomatam tadeva brahmatvam vidhi nedam yadidam upasate yadvacha nabhyuditam yena vagabhyudyate Tadeva Brahmatvam Vidhi Nedam Yadidam Upasate Ityadi Kenopanishad says he's the one that gives life to your mind, but your mind can't know him. He's the one who gives sound to your voice, yet your words cannot reach him. In other words, with no amount of words could you fully describe God. He's the one who gives sight to your eyes but you can't see him. He is the one who gives hearing to your ears, but you can't hear his voice. He is the one who gives life to your very soul, but he's beyond you. He's within you and beyond you at the same time. How is it so? Well, he's the one giving life to your soul. So it's like this light bulb here is being powered by some huge powerhouse somewhere, perhaps a nuclear powerhouse. So if this light bulb could talk and he said, Oh, nuclear powerhouse, I challenge you, we would all laugh. What? The powerhouse is the one powering you with a fraction of its power. It's also doing so many other things. It's powering one little 60 or 100 watt light bulb and you think you're going to challenge the powerhouse? In that same way, God gives life to all the living beings. 
He's within every single soul. So could any soul challenge God that I can know you, I can reach you? No, any more than this light bulb can challenge the powerhouse. This light bulb can't know where is this power coming from. In the same way, God is inspiring us to life. He's upholding our existence so we cannot reach him with the same mind which is given life by him. It's impossible. God is unlimited, absolute, unlimited, unlimited in every way, unlimited in size, unlimited in knowledge. He's omnipresent everywhere, all the time. Our mind is limited. How much can you learn, know, memorize, remember in one life? So we have a limited intellect and God is unlimited. So with our limited intellect, if we could know God, it would mean God would have to be smaller than our intellect. Right? To fit one thing inside another, the thing that's going inside the other has to be smaller. So if God could fit inside our intellect, if our intellect could grasp God, it means God would have to be less than our power of knowing. God would have to be under our intellect. So in that case, we would call our intellect God, and God would be something else. So in this way, we've briefly understood why God is beyond our mayic senses and mind, and thus... Nobody with a material mind, nobody with material senses can know God, can see God, or get any direct evidence or proof of God's existence. But that doesn't mean that we can never have that proof. Because there's another kind of proof which even scientists rely on. It's called Anuman Praman. Anuman Praman means when you <clears throat> deduce the existence of something without actually having seen it yet. This is how scientists hypothesize before anyone had developed any technology which could allow them to actually see an atom. They had hypothesized about the existence of atoms. Did they have any direct proof? No, they didn't. But they said, based on this, 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 this thing must be right. Did they have a direct proof of that? No. It was an educated guess. Call it a hypothesis. Call it an unproven hypo hypothesis. An educated guess. They deduced the existence of atoms before ever having seen them. Later, the technology was developed which actually allowed them to see that with their own eyes, that atoms actually exist. Then they had the proof. So science does not always rely on direct evidence. That's the ultimate goal, definitely. But in order to get there, sometimes they use Anuman Praman, indirect evidence, or they deduce the existence of something. Inf they infer, can call it inferential evidence. So is there any inferential evidence we can use to deduce God's existence? Yes, in many scriptures there are many different deductions made. For instance, take size. Let's say you have a mustard seed. Bigger than a mustard seed, an apple. Bigger than an apple, a watermelon. Bigger than a watermelon, a mountain. Bigger than a mountain, the ocean. Bigger than the ocean, the endless sky. So what could be bigger than the endless sky? If there's something bigger than that, well, that could be God. Something unlimited. So we infer the existence of something unlimited. Take intelligence. There are different degrees of intelligence, from less to more to greater to extremely great. So we could infer that maybe there's a perfect intelligence. That would be God. Looking at the existence of this world, 
we can infer that because even something as simple as a clay pot cannot come into existence on its own, or take that clock on the wall above you, did that clock come into existence all on its own? No, somebody had to make it. So nothing in this world makes itself. Nothing in this world comes into existence all on its own. Somebody with intelligence makes it. Not only intelligence, our darshan shastras say there are several things required just to make something. Take a clay pot. First you need to have the materials. You need to have some clay, you need to have some temper, maybe some sand, you need to have some water, you need to have a potter's wheel, you need to have a, a proper oven to cure it in. So the proper materials must be there. Then you need a potter. You need a person who can make the pot. Now the question comes, does that potter have the knowledge of how to make that particular pot that you want made? So the potter has to have the right knowledge. So you need materials, you need the potter, you need the potter to have the right gyan, the right knowledge. Now let's say he has all of that, but he doesn't have the desire to create it. Then it's not going to get made, so the desire, the ikcha has to be there as well. Now he may have a desire to create it, but he might say, mm, no, I'm not going to do it anyway. So in addition to his desire, he has to make the decision to make that pot, sankalp. Then comes effort, cheshta, then kriya. In other words, then the pot gets made. All of these things, you need saman, you need bananewala, you need the proper gyan, you need itcha, you need sankalp, you need cheshta, and in the end you finally get the kriya, you get the finished product. So when making something as simple as a clay pot takes all of this, then does it make sense that this world could have come into being on its own? A simple clay pot in this world is nothing compared to the complexity of this universe. Just take our earth planet. Look at the variety on this earth planet. No two people have the same face, even if they're identical twins. They're not actually identical. No two people have the same fingerprint. No two people have the same voice. No two people have the same iris in their eye. No two leaves on the same tree are exactly the same. Such is the variety just on our earth planet. Then look at the universe as a whole. You have galaxies, clusters of galaxies, super clusters of galaxies, and within each galaxy various suns with their planetary systems, solar systems, and everything in motion, and everything perfectly coordinated. No astronomer has ever looked up into the sky and seen two galaxies collide and explode. Oh, we had, today we had a collision of galaxies. It doesn't happen. Everything is coordinated and controlled. So when such a complex and vast system is in existence, compare that to a clay pot. If that clay pot could not come into existence without that potter, how could this have come into existence without someone powerful enough and intelligent enough to guide the creation of this universe and uphold its existence and uphold the laws which are regulating it? There has to be some all-powerful, all-knowing being behind all of this. This is all inference. Because none of us were there when God created the universe. If we were there, then we could have reported back. Oh yes, God did this. Take my word for it. But none of us were there, so we don't have the direct evidence. So this is all inferred, inferential. Just like uh, if you see smoke on a distant hill, you don't see the fire, but you see the smoke. 
But you know of a relationship between smoke and fire. You know that smoke cannot exist unless there's a fire. So when you see the smoke, you know there's a fire over there. Do you have the direct evidence of the fire's existence? No, you didn't see the fire. You didn't see any flame, but you know it's there because you saw the smoke. That's inference. So we use that same logic to infer God's existence or deduce God's existence. And as I told you, scientists do the same thing. Scientists are trying to do the same thing right now, trying to understand the origin of the universe. Where did the universe come from? We should all turn our cell phones off, actually, when we come in the Monday, at least on vibrate or silent. So, <clears throat> scientists do the same thing. As I told you, before a scientist had ever seen an atom with his own eyes, they had already deduced the existence of atoms. So they do make use of inferential evidence, and even right now, they're based on what they see, the motion of things in the universe, the substantial makeup of the universe, they try to deduce how did all of this originate, where did it come from, what was the original cause of the universe. No scientist was there at that time, so they don't have direct evidence. All of their theories about the origin of the universe are based on inference alone. So we can use the same logic to infer God's existence. Yet, such inference is not final proof. Because I use the analogy of the smoke and the fire. See. Each one of us has seen a fire before, and we've seen the smoke that goes along with it. That is why we can infer positively, because I've seen smoke and fire before, so now I'm seeing just the smoke, I know the fire is there. But we've never seen God. So we're inferring the existence of God based on the, the existence of the universe, but that's not conclusive. That just, that's pointing us in the right direction. But we need more proof than just this inferential proof. So we'll turn to the third and final type of proof, which is called Shabda Praman. Shabda Praman means someone else has the direct evidence. It means they saw, you haven't seen it yet, but they saw, so you take their word for it. Shabda means word. So you're taking someone else's word for it. Do scientists ever do this? Do we ever do this in the world? Sure, we do it all the time. I've never seen an atom with my own eyes, but I believe they exist. Why? Because some scientist has said, I did an experiment and I saw an atom with my own eyes. And I say, okay, you're the expert. I believe you. Is that not faith? I believe in something I've never seen because I've never seen an atom with my own eyes, but I believe they exist. There are probably scientists in other fields, maybe, maybe a scientist uh, in the field of biology. Perhaps he's an expert in uh, ecology and in biology, but maybe he's never looked through a powerful enough microscope to actually see an atom. He's probably looked through a microscope and seen cells, but he's never actually seen an atom. He's a scientist. So will that biologist say that, no, I don't believe in atoms because I've never seen them with my own eyes? No, he says, oh, there's another scientist in another field. He's an expert in uh, atoms and electrons and particles, subparticles. I believe him. See, even a scientist has faith. He has faith in someone else's words, even though he hasn't seen it for himself with his own eyes. So this is faith. 
Everybody has faith, one time or another, in one situation or another, even scientists. Is there any such Shabda Pramana when it comes to God? Oh yes, more than you have the time to read in this lifetime. Our Vedas, Upanishads, Puranas, even the Gita is full of Shabda Pramana. What, what did Arjun see? When he surrendered to Krishna and Krishna gave him divine eyes, then he saw Krishna and he describes the whole thing, exactly what he saw. That is Shabda Pramana. So Arjuna is now the expert and he's telling us, this is what I saw. So we have the same exact proof of God's existence that scientists have for the existence of material things. We have experts like Arjun, like other saints, thousands and thousands of saints documented in our scriptures who saw God with their own eyes. That's the same type of proof. They got the direct proof and they established the Shabda Praman by recording it in scriptures like Ramayana, Mahabharata, all the other scriptures. And we have the inferential proof. So we have all three kinds of proof for God's existence. The same three kinds of proof we use in science. So no one is foolish enough in the field of material science to say that because I haven't... Oh, you've seen it? Oh, you say you're a big expert? You've seen it? No, I don't believe you. Who's talking? A fifth grader. It doesn't make sense. The scientist would laugh that, Oh, my son, you know, you have to study. You have to get to this level where I am. Then you can know the things I know. From where you are now, how can I explain this to you? How can I show it to you? You won't understand get to my level, then you can understand. In the same way, if a saint hears one of us saying, I've never seen God, so I don't believe in Him. I don't believe you. You, you say you've seen God, but you won't show Him to me? He says you have to get to my level, then you can see God. It's the exact same thing. So, blind faith and irrational faith would be if we were just told to believe it, but never given the means of, of experiencing it for ourselves. Hinduism gives you the means of getting there as well. The means of getting to that level where that saint is standing, and he's saying, from where I'm standing, I can see God. But he doesn't leave it at that. He says, here's how you can get to where I'm standing, then you can see God for yourself. So all of our scriptures teach the same thing. Although God is beyond your material eyes, beyond your material mind, but if you follow the path to God, God will grace you in the end. When you become fully surrendered to Him, He will grace you with divine eyes. He will grace you with a divine mind. In other words, He will give you His mind. He'll give you His eyes. Natumam shakyase drashtu mane The first half of that Gita shloka I quoted for you where Krishna says, Arjun, you can't see me with your eyes. But the second half says, Divyam dadami te chakshu pasyane yoga maishwaram. So, Arjun, I will give you divine eyes. And with divine eyes you can see me. So, you need God's eyes to see God. Dadami buddhi yogam tam yena mamupayantite. Earlier in the tenth chapter, Krishna had told Arjun, When a soul surrenders to me, I give him my mind. I give him a divine mind. And with a divine mind, he can know me. So, can God be known? 
Yes, if you surrender to him and he gives you a divine mind, with a divine mind you can know divine God. If you surrender to him, he will give you divine vision. So with divine vision, you can see his actual divine form. That is the moment where you get your ultimate proof. Then you can have a conversation with God just like we can have a conversation here today. That real, not an imagination, not a thought, but actually real you meeting real God face to face. That's the ultimate proof. That's what we all want. And that is the ultimate goal of every soul. And that is the ultimate path of realization which is taught in our Hindu scriptures. So it's not a case of, no, you can't see God, you can't know God, just believe in Him. It's a case of, look, from where you are right now, you can't see God and you can't know God, but if you follow this path, and we're going to talk about what the path is in the days to come, if you follow this path, you will get to that point where you can see God, where you can know God. So this is not blind faith. This is the same type of faith a scientist has when he says, oh, these great scientists are saying that this is true? Okay, I want to study and learn and get to their level so I can see that for my own self. In science, there's something we call reproducible results. If a scientist performs an experiment and he documents it, and he says, I proved this thing through this experiment. But nobody else is able to reproduce the same results by redoing the same experiment. Then his findings are thrown out. Nobody believes him. But we've had thousands and thousands of saints who all did the same experiment and got the same results. And it's all documented in our scriptures. And they're saying, you, you too, you do the same experiment and you'll get the same results. So scientists have faith initially in something that they can't see right now. They have faith in what the great experts who are beyond them are saying. And based on that faith, they practice and they learn and they progress. And then when they get to that level, they get the actual proof for themselves. It's no different with God. So having faith in God is very scientific. It's completely rational and logical because there is a way to get proof, but initially to progress in that direction, you have to take somebody else's word for it. A few hundred years ago, before anyone, any European, had explored west of the Mississippi River, it was unknown. From the Mississippi to the Pacific was unknown. And then there was a great expedition, Lewis and Clark. Lewis and Clark set out and they explored a path. They found a trail or they, they found a way to get from the Mississippi River to the Pacific Ocean. And they documented everything they saw along the way, all the species, all the plants and animals, all the rivers. They mapped everything out. And then they returned with all of this new information. So at that time, there might have been someone who said, I don't believe you made it to the Pacific Ocean. You just made all of that up. Anybody could have written that. So Lewis and Clark would have said, here's the map. Go check it out for yourself. If you follow my map and you don't get to the Pacific Ocean, then you can say, hi, I told you. But I'm telling you, if you follow it correctly, you don't get lost along the way. If you follow it correctly, you will get there. And you'll see all these things along the way. That's how you'll know that you're going in the right direction. Saints and scriptures tell us the same thing. God is in that direction. Here's the map. These are the things you're going to see along the way. These are the landmarks that will tell you you're progressing in the right direction. So. Go and see for yourself. It's no different than what explorers do, than what scientists do. We all rely on the same method. It's just that the scientific 
means of discovery, meaning our scientific instrumentation, our material mind, our material senses, those things cannot reach God. So we can't prove God's existence with the same things we use to prove material existences. You have to do devotion, surrender to God, get God's grace. With his grace you'll get divine eyes and a divine mind. Then you'll have the proper equipment to actually see God for yourself. So you see, it's very logical to have faith. We have faith so that we can get the proof. It's not just a blind faith. So the faith is the starting point. You have to say, yes, that thing you're describing I've never seen, but I want to get there. I want to see that. So you're having faith. Whether it's wanting to follow in the steps of Lewis and Clark or whether it's wanting to see God. You have faith in those who have gone before you and you practice accordingly and then you get the proof for yourself. The other interesting thing on this topic is that scientific knowledge is always incomplete. I told you in the beginning of this speech that our material mind has never reached the point where we can understand everything even in this material world. But, yasmin gyate sarvamidagvam sarvam bhavati gyatam bhavati Ved says when you know God, you know everything. Why? Because everything is under God. Remember I told you, beyond our senses is our mind, beyond our mind is our soul, beyond our soul is God. Maya is also under God. So, God incorporates and includes everyone and everything. So if you know God, you know everything. There's nothing left to know. So it means that even a material scientist who wants to perfect his material knowledge can only do so by attaining God. Interesting, isn't it? No scientist could ever hope to know everything about the material world. It's impossible. But if the same scientist does devotion to God, surrenders, receives a divine mind, and thus knows God, he also automatically knows everything about the material world. So that is why our great saints and scriptures also have described the origin of the universe. And bit by bit, scientists are starting to realize that what's written in the Vedas and the Bhagavatam regarding the origin of the universe is actually in perfect alignment with the reality. Where it's out of alignment is where science has gone in the wrong direction and gradually when it corrects they realize oh it's just like it said in Vedas just like it said in Bhagavatam how is that so? because those scriptures were written by great saints who knew God thus they knew everything about Maya and the whole material existence as well so even a scientist can attain his ultimate goal of knowing everything by knowing God but without knowing God, without surrendering to God, we're always just limited to a, a certain part of this material existence. We're only able to know some things about even this material existence, let alone knowing God. So now we understand something very important, which you can also explain to your kids, which is that faith is not irrational. Faith is even a part of science. And faith is not blind if you are given a way to prove that thing that you have faith in. So in this series, <clears throat> we're going to talk about what that path is. How can we get to that point where we can actually know God and experience God, which, as I explained in the previous days, means that once you know God, not only do you know everything, but you get perfect happiness as well because God himself is happiness. So, attaining God is the ultimate goal of every soul. And every soul wants only God because God 
is happiness. So saying you want happiness and saying you want God is the very same thing. Saying you want happiness and saying you don't believe in God is a total contradiction because God is happiness. So everybody believes in God whether they like it or not because their soul wants God. Their mind might be polluted to the point where they can't believe in God from their mind. But deep in their heart, they desire God and they love God. So attaining God is the ultimate goal of every soul and we're going to talk about the path to God explained in Hinduism. Before we get to that, there's one other doubt that we have to clear, which is that I'm referring to the scriptures of Sanatana Dharma. I'm referring to Hinduism. But there are so many other religions in the world as well. So people often have this doubt that why are there other religions? And although there are some similarities between the, the different religions, there are also many differences. So why are those differences there? If God is one, why should there be various religions? And why should those religions be saying different things? Or are all religions just the same? They might be saying it in different words, but are they the same? Sometimes people say that, that, oh, it's all the same. All the paths are the same. All the religions are the same. So which is right? Are they all the same or are there differences? And why are there so many? And what is Hinduism's place among the various religions of the world? And why am I giving so much importance to Hinduism? I'll explain all of this tomorrow. So we'll finish with a kirtan now. Jaiho Jaiho Alabelo Sarkar. Another kirtan revealed by Jagadguru Shri Kripaluji Maharaj. In simple Hindi, describing Krishna's greatness, his personality, his leelas. So it's to help us develop an image of Krishna in our mind. So you should all think of Krishna, see his divine form in front of you while we're doing the chanting.
बलिहार बलिहार